0: That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. The medical field is known for high salaries. Dentistry, in particular, is consistently ranked as a top career because of its comfortable income and flexible hours. So one would presume that most dentists don't have side hustles. But Glennon Engelman had a pretty significant one. When he wasn't in the office scraping people's teeth, he was plotting homicides for big insurance payouts. Unfortunately for his victims, tooth repair, while lucrative, simply wasn't exciting enough for Engelmann. And once he started killing, he couldn't surrender the rush of getting away with it. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to, do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting, I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers.
1: I'm Alistair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, I'm looking forward to assisting Alistair by providing some medical insight into our final episode of our deranged dentist, Dr. Glennon Engelman.
0: You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all of the Parkar shows for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our second episode on Glennon Engelman, a Missouri dentist who amassed a body count of seven over a nearly 30-year killing spree. Last week, we examined how lucrative life insurance payouts drew Engelman to a life of crime in the late 1950s and 60s. We also tracked the pattern of his schemes, encouraging a woman to get hitched, then offering to kill the unlucky groom for a profitable outcome. Today, we'll explore Engelmann's greediest plot, which eventually led to his downfall. All this and more, coming up. Stay with us. By 1976, St. Louis dentist Glennon Engelmann's life was defined by mistresses, money and murder. The 49-year-old doctor had killed three people with the assistance of three different women. He'd also gone through multiple wives and mistresses, but none had hung around for good. And that wasn't for lack of trying. Engelmann seemingly charmed his lovers into subservience. But his erratic outbursts and controlling behaviours turned every romance volatile. And his wives had great reason to suspect that Engelmann was a career criminal. His successful homicides weren't something he felt a need to hide. Put simply, he wasn't exactly holy matrimony material. After he killed his third victim, Engelman heavily insinuated what he'd done to his accomplice's brother. It seemed his self-worth was rooted in pride. His life was exciting. By killing people for their life insurance payouts, perhaps Engelman could prove he was more than a simple, boring dentist. He likely believed he was a cunning and ruthless man and wanted everyone in his life to see him this way. Unfortunately, while he might have been a charismatic villain, Engelman wasn't necessarily a good dentist or businessman. His dental practice was constantly in debt to its vendors. He also hadn't paid his taxes in years, so the Internal Revenue Service began hounding him in the mid-70s. Under mounting financial pressure, Engelmann turned to a familiar plan. He convinced his mistress at the time, Barbara, to marry a stable middle-class working man and then buy plenty of life insurance on her new husband. The scheme had worked three times before, and he expected it would work again. Of course, Engelman hadn't yet realized that this next plan would cost more lives than any of his others. He was only out for one victim as the plot materialized in his mind. Still, this time, he decided to seek help with the homicide itself. And he turned to a jack-of-all-trades, fittingly named Robert Handy, Known by those close to him as Bob. Throughout the spring of 1976, Handy did odd jobs for Engelman around his dental office. They often went out to lunch together and Engelman boasted about the people he killed. Somehow, Handy wasn't turned off. Instead, he seemed intrigued. So when Engelman asked him to help kill Barbara's husband for a cut of the life insurance payout, Handy didn't think twice. the initial plan to kill Barbara's well-insured beau would soon grow more complex. The man was an oil refinery worker named Ron Goosewell, and while his work and personal life insurance policies made him worth a significant sum, there was far more wealth attached to his name. In May 1976, not long after her marriage to Ron, Barbara told Engelman, Ron's parents are pretty wealthy people. Barbara wasn't kidding ron's parents vanita and arthur goosewell found great success running a small town farm years of hard labor had earned them a life savings worth over half a million dollars in 1977. when barbara revealed this to engelman he saw an opportunity if ron's parents died ron would receive an inheritance then when ron died barbara would inherit that money and Ron's life insurance. The plan couldn't have been clearer to Glennon Engelman, and to his delight, his two henchmen, Barbara and Bob, were on board. So, on November 3rd, 1977, Engelman donned his suit and a pair of gloves, then tucked a 22 caliber pistol and silencer into his pocket. He got into Handy's car and the two headed north to the Goosewell Farm in rural Illinois. Engelman didn't anticipate a small-town farmer would have trepidation about letting a stranger inside his home, especially one who looked as normal as Engelman did. His alias, that he was from the Farm Bureau, would help assuage any suspicion. And just as Engelman suspected, Arthur Goosewell invited him into his home without pause. Moments later, Engelman pulled out his pistol and a rope. He told the couple, "If you lie down quietly so I can tie your hands, I won't have to hurt you." Sadly, Engelman was lying. As soon as Venita and Arthur lay down on the kitchen floor, Engelman screwed the silencer onto the pistol. Then he put the gun to 55-year-old Venita's head and fired
1: three times and this was an intensely violent way to go when someone gets shot in the head the bullet punctures the skull and lodges in or travels through the brain's tissue the bullet also often carries pieces of bone from the initial entry wound which leads to even more tissue damage the main cause of death from a gunshot to the head is usually blood loss which occurs when the bullet hits and destroys crucial blood vessels Each shot increases the already strong likelihood of death and causes more irreversible destruction. Inside the brain, there are structures that control our respiration, blood circulation, and everything else that keeps the body functioning. If these structures become severely physically compromised or completely lose their blood supply, we can't survive. Because Vernita experienced such massive brain trauma, she died instantly.
0: After Vanita, Engelman moved to her 71-year-old husband, Arthur. In his excitement, Engelman only shot Arthur once before turning his attention to staging the crime scene. He intended to make the murders look like a botched home invasion. He tossed the house but neglected to take some of the valuable cash and jewelry in the Goosewell's bedroom. He left Vanita and Arthur where they lay and avoided stepping in the spreading pools of blood. Then he raced back to Handy, waiting in the car down the road. As Engelman and Handy sped back towards St. Louis, Engelman boasted about how easy the murders had been. He said, It went so smooth. I showed them the rope, they just laid right down for me when I told them to, putting their heads down for the gun. It was that easy. Engelman might have been less happy if he'd known what was happening back at the Goosewell residence. Arthur was still moving, and he was heading for the phone
1: to call 911. It's unlikely that someone who sustains a gunshot wound to the head will live very long, but it can happen. If a bullet doesn't damage or destroy any areas that control respiration or heart function, the victim can actually stay alive for a while. However, if there's no intervention, the swelling and blood clots caused by bleeding can eventually obstruct blood flow and put pressure on tissue and important components of the brain, causing death. Based on the fact that Arthur could still move and speak, I'd guess that Engelman shot him in the back of the head, with the bullet traveling upwards at a 45-degree angle, and sparing the frontal lobe. I say his frontal lobe was likely spared, because this part of the brain is responsible for motor function, language, and cognitive ability. This would explain his ability to move towards the phone and his intention to call the police. Arthur managed to dial 911 and an ambulance was
0: dispatched. Due to his head wound and the copious amounts of blood running down his face, Arthur couldn't see anything. Still, he managed to drag himself up into a chair where he sat and waited. He drifted in and out of consciousness, and when the paramedics arrived, he managed to mumble just a few words. One of them was the word, two. In fact, Arthur repeated the words several times, right up to his final minutes. Sadly, Arthur died in the hospital that night. That day, the police broke the news about Vanita and Arthur's gruesome slaying to their son, Ron, and his wife, Barbara. In response, Barbara put on a loud, sobbing show of emotion. She kept repeating specific facts about the last time she'd seen them more visibly affected than anyone else in the Goosewell family. She was also quick to repeat her whereabouts on the day the Goosewells were killed. Behaviour an innocent person wouldn't feel the need for. The police were mildly suspicious but couldn't pursue it because they couldn't find any concrete evidence about the murder. They only knew that whoever had killed Vernita and Arthur Goosewell had used the same gun on each. After months of fruitless investigation, the police finally chalked up the murder case to a botched home invasion. Ron claimed his inheritance a year later. Engelman's plan was working perfectly, but it wasn't done just yet. Coming up, dentist Glennon Engelman offs a third Goosewell. Hey podcasters, Alistair here. If you haven't had a chance to check out the entertaining new podcast, Blind Dating, now's the time to binge what you've missed before catching all new episodes every Wednesday. In this Spotify original from Parcast, we're expanding the places you can meet your match with a twist you'll never see coming. Join host Tara Michelle as she introduces one hopeful single to two strangers in a voice-only call. Through a series of illuminating games and questions, the trio will get to know one another, without the distraction of appearances. But once the cameras are turned on, is personality still enough for these strangers to fall for each other? Or will they say farewell? Connect with new episodes of Blind Dating every Wednesday. You can find and follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now... Back to the story. By the spring of 1979, 52-year-old dentist Glennon Engelman was preparing to commit another murder. This was to be his sixth, and would mark the final move of his most complex scheme yet. The mere thought put Engelman in a particularly carnal mood. At the time, he was having an affair with Barbara, the woman responsible for luring in his latest victim, her now husband, Ron. He also had an ongoing relationship with his third ex-wife, Ruth. Though they'd only been married for a brief time, Ruth had uncovered Engelman's crimes. While she divorced him as quickly as she could, she wasn't able to stay away forever. Just to be clear, Ruth is a different woman than his first wife, Ruthie, who helped Engelman kill James Bullock. And though Engelman's latest wife uncovered his cheating, he didn't care enough to stop. As far as Engelman was concerned, he was finally getting everything he wanted – money, respect, and control. To assert power, Engelman frequently reminded Barbara, Ruth, and Bob Handy that he and they were homicidally intimate. To him, that was a deeper bond than any found in family, friendship, or finances. Still, Engelman's fellowship didn't end at secret-keeping. He liked to buy extravagant gifts and dinners for the people in his life, which may have also served as incentives for them to stick around. But while he may have kept friends this way, frivolous gifts weren't exactly helpful for his debts. The financial strain only further expedited his murder plot. In 1979, 33-year-old Ron Goosewell, Barbara's husband, had finally received his share of his parents' estate. Nearly 18 months had passed since Glennon Engelman had murdered the elder Goosewells, but no members of law enforcement suspected his involvement. Still, Engelman decided to recruit his friend Handy to help him with his next kill. Last time, Handy had just been the getaway driver. Now, Engelman was asking a whole lot more. The plan was to unfold on March 31, 1979. That evening, Engelman and Handy parked in a lot near the Goosewells farm, where Barbara picked them up and took them to the house she shared with her husband. When they arrived, Barbara let them into the garage, where they talked for nearly an hour, firmly committing their alibis to memory. Finally, Barbara went back inside, and the two men waited for Ron to come home from his shift at the nearby oil refinery. Engelman was excited and talkative, over-explaining the plan to Handy for the tenth time. Handy nodded along, listening to Engelman's every word, until they heard the crunch of gravel outside. A few minutes before 11pm, a pair of headlights illuminated the garage as Ron turned his vintage Chevy Camaro into the gravel driveway. Engelman and Handy got into position. Engelman held his 38 pistol in one hand and a small sledgehammer in the other. As Ron raised the garage door to park his car inside, Handy stepped back so Engelman could take his shot. As soon as Ron's face appeared, the dentist took aim, issuing a vulgar threat. Engelman pulled the trigger and then, half a second later, swung the hammer at Ron's head. As Ron fell with a bullet in his chest,
1: the hammer cracked his skull and either could have resulted in his abrupt demise. For a swift death to come from that initial gunshot to the chest, the bullet probably would have had to hit Ron's aorta or heart. If the bullet hit Ron's aorta, which we know from last week's episode, is the body's largest artery, running from the chest to groin, he would have died very quickly from tremendous internal bleeding. If a bullet damaged or punctured Ron's heart, death would occur almost instantly from massive internal bleeding and from organ failure due to a lack of blood circulation. The sledgehammer Engelman then used to finish the job could also have ultimately been the deadly weapon in this equation. Here, death would have been caused by a traumatic brain injury resulting from blunt force trauma, which is injury caused by a forceful, non-penetrating impact between the body and a dull object. We all know how heavy a sledgehammer is, and being on the receiving end of one can't ever be pretty. The blow Ron sustained, which was heavy enough to fracture his skull, probably caused severe tissue damage and bleeding in his brain. As we've learned from the first part of our story in discussing Eric Fry's death, brain hemorrhages are very dangerous and can be lethal if severe. The brain is the body's computer or command center. If his vital structures are destroyed, or damaged and pressurized enough by internal bleeding, respiratory and circulatory function halts, causing death. Whatever the exact cause of death was, his injuries must have been extreme, as Ron was dead in seconds. The gruesome murder left
0: quite the mess. But Engelman and Handy were quick to clean up the scene. They picked up Ron's body and shoved it in the back of his own Camaro. The body was bleeding so heavily that Engelman told Barbara to get some towels. She ran inside and grabbed a stack of clean, fluffy bath towels. Engelman stuffed several around Ron's broken skull. Barbara used the rest to wipe down the pool of blood that adorned the garage floor. Then, Engelman got behind the wheel of the Camaro. After dropping Handy off at his car, Engelman led the way into St. Louis, where they would dump their victim. Engelman parked the Camaro with Ron's corpse in a parking lot near a liquor store. The neighborhood was a notorious red-light district with few streetlights and even fewer police. Engelman knew that this would delay the eventual discovery of Ron's body while also throwing off the investigation. Engelman got into Handy's car and they drove away. Under the cover of night, Engelman smiled to himself. His plan was complete. Like he'd planned, it took five days for Ron's body to be discovered. When police jimmied the lock on the Camaro and opened the door, the smell of rotting flesh
1: was horrendous. Ron's body had begun to decompose. Let's break this down. The process of decomposition starts almost immediately after death and kicks off with a phase known as autolysis, where the body essentially releases enzymes that start breaking down its own tissue. At first glance, Ron Goosewell was likely unrecognizable. After five days, the decomposition process had changed his facial features. This indicates that his body was in the second phase of decomposition, known as bloat. In temperate conditions, it usually takes a few days to a week for bloat to set in. However, given that Ron's corpse was left in the trunk of a car for five days in the spring heat, the body was probably in the latter stages of bloat. Bloat begins as microorganisms digest tissue in the gut and start to secrete gases. The pressure from this gas causes facial features to swell, bulge, and completely distort. Chemical compounds are also released during bloat that cause skin discoloration and the breakdown of more cells and tissue. This continued cellular breakdown causes the skin to loosen and seemingly slip off the body. In addition to the optics, it makes sense that the officers noticed a horrible smell. Not only are the gases released by microorganisms in the gut foul, the body also secretes offensive smelling fluid. As the gastrointestinal tract is chemically broken down, the byproduct is this awful smelling liquid known as purge fluid. During bloat, the gases in the intestines create pressure and push this purge fluid out of the nose and mouth. All of this seems to relate to what was witnessed and experienced at the scene. Ron's corpse was bloated and stank horribly. Because of this, it would have initially been really difficult to identify the body. But
0: police detectives soon turned to different hints of identification. The clothes and the Camaro. They were able to determine that the victim had been Ron Goosewell, whose parents had strangely been murdered less than two years prior. But the police didn't suspect the murders had been connected. Instead, they looked at the cigarettes, coins, and condoms they'd found on him and came to another conclusion. They believed Ron had traveled to East St. Louis likely to hire a sex worker. Unfortunately, he'd crossed the wrong person or been mugged and ended up dead. However, one piece of evidence didn't seem to fit that narrative. A crime lab technician noted that the towels used to absorb his blood were pretty high-end. Most people living in that part of town wouldn't have had them. But the peculiar detail wasn't enough to prompt deeper investigation. The case was closed and Barbara was due to receive a $190,000 life insurance payout. In addition, she would inherit Ron's estate, which included his own recent inheritance from his parents. All told, Barbara could potentially net over $500,000, nearly $1.8 million in modern currency. It was by far the biggest payout Engelman's murder schemes had ever made. Little did Engelman know, he would never see any of the cash. Just like in the Peter Hall murder, the insurance company was hesitant to pay out such a significant claim without more scrutiny. So, Barbara gave Engelman $4,000 of her own money while they waited. It was enough to settle his tax bill, but not nearly enough to erase the debt from his dental practice nor pay off Bob Handy. Handy was irritated, but he kept his mouth shut. He'd learned long ago that he didn't want to end up on Engelman's bad side. And it was a good call, because despite the coming influx of cash, Engelman wasn't feeling very charitable. He'd been slammed with yet another financial burden. The owner of the dental facility that processed his x-rays, dental impressions and dentures decided to take Engelman to court. Put plainly, 59-year-old Sophie Barrera wasn't convinced Engelman would ever pay her the nearly $15,000 he owed on his own. She hoped legal proceedings would ensure that justice was served. Unfortunately, the lawsuit only stoked the fires of Engelman's rage. He felt that Sophie was a shrew who would serve him best if she were dead. So, Engelman turned to his functional knowledge of explosives to rid himself of the debt and Sophie. A few minutes before 5pm on January 14, 1980, Sophie Barrera left her dental laboratory for the night. Her red Ford Pinto was parked in the lot behind the building, out of sight from the street. As Sophie climbed in her car, she didn't notice the small device tucked under her front tire. It was a trigger plate connected to a wire which ran all the way to a bundle of dynamite under the driver's seat. As Sophie put the car in gear and rolled over the plate, the bomb exploded. Glennon Engelman had killed his seventh victim. Up next, Sophie's murder lands an investigator hot on Glennon Engelman's tracks. Now, back to the story. When 52-year-old Glennon Engelman didn't want to pay his $15,000 debt to Sophie Barrera, he did what any murderer might he offed her. Though she wouldn't have suffered long, Sophie's violent car bomb murder told investigators her killer held a grudge. And soon, they would come to learn about the lawsuit Sophie had taken out against Engelman. Sophie's adult son and several of her friends and neighbors immediately identified Engelmann as a suspect. It was obvious Engelmann had the most to gain from her death. So, in the days following the bombing, The St. Louis police and the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms brought Engelman in for questioning. Engelman refused to submit to a polygraph or to tests of his hands and clothes for explosive residue. But he didn't refuse to talk. In fact, Engelman wouldn't shut up for nearly three hours when agents questioned him. He railed against Sophie but denied any involvement in her death. He claimed he would have won the lawsuit and even said, I'm not sorry she's dead. She got what she deserved. His resentment for Sophie was shocking, but it wasn't a confession that he'd killed her. Engelman even had an alibi since he was in his dental office with patients the entire day of the bombing. So the investigators had to let him go. But one of the lead detectives for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms William McGarvey, refused to accept that Engelman wasn't involved. While Engelman's alibi proved that he hadn't planted the bomb, it was still quite possible that he'd planned it. Now, McGarvey didn't suspect he'd get an admission from Engelman, but he imagined the people in Engelman's circle might reveal quite a bit about him. So McGarvey got in touch with Engelman's ex-wife and sometimes lover, Ruth. Despite their fiery dynamic and ongoing relationship, Ruth knew about Engelman's murderous history and feared one day she'd end up like his victims. This concern was enough to convince her to talk when McGarvey reached out. On January 19th, just five days after the bombing, Ruth exposed Engelman. And she didn't just leave it at Sophie Barrera, She told McGarvey about each person Engelman was responsible for killing, at least the ones she knew about. Her detailed statement about Engelman's deadly career turned out to be 56 pages long. But McGarvey couldn't end his search at Ruth's statement. He needed to prove her claims with some hard evidence. So Ruth agreed to wear a wire. Over the next several weeks, any time Engelman came over to Ruth's house, McGarvey and his team were listening in a surveillance van up the street. Unfortunately, Engelman was paranoid about wiretapping. He talked and talked and Ruth even went so far as to ask pointed questions about his previous killings. But Engelman never said anything specific about his crimes. One night, Ruth pushed him a little too hard. When she asked why he had no compunction about killing people, Engelman's mood suddenly turned sour. He glared at his ex-wife and said, When you start accusing me of killing people, I start wondering if I am in a bugged room. You are no longer my wife. You can testify. That makes me a little bit edgy. You dwell on that for a little while. Then Engelman left. The implication was clear. Engelman had no problem killing Ruth to keep her quiet. McGarvey wasn't willing to put Ruth in danger, even though she wanted to keep wearing the hidden microphone. At this point, Ruth wanted Engelman in prison, where he couldn't hurt anyone ever again. McGarvey had the same goal, but now he had to find a different way to achieve it. So he turned to the newspapers. Several reporters had been on the story about the car bombing and uncovered the lawsuit about Engelmann. But only one newspaper, the Globe, looked into Engelmann's past. When they researched Peter Helm's murder, they noted the suspicious circumstances behind the life insurance policy taken out by Helm's wife Carmen shortly before his death, as well as her connection to Engelmann. Reporters brought this information to McGarvey, who, after the wiretapping effort had hit a snag encouraged them to publish a piece about it. He hoped that once Engelmann's involvement with Helm's death hit the public, Engelmann would be shaken enough to openly discuss his murders with Ruth. And to McGarvey's relief, he was right. A few days after the story hit the papers, Engelman and Ruth went out for pizza, and Ruth wore the wire. Engelman talked about his past relationships with Carmen and Bob Handy, He got more and more worked up about his past and said he was tired of the insurance schemes. He just wanted to get back to dentistry. But these admissions weren't incriminating until Engelman mentioned that he'd wanted more money after the death of Peter Helm. When Ruth's secret microphone recorded this confession, McGarvey finally had enough to charge Engelman with murder. On February 24, 1980, Glennon Engelman was arrested. Bob Handy was arrested the same day. Engelman couldn't believe it. They were arresting him for a murder he committed four years ago, not the one he'd committed last month. It had taken a long time, but Engelman was finally caught. He knew immediately Ruth had been the one to betray him. Unfortunately for Engelman, she wasn't the only one. Within 24 hours of his arrest, Engelman's other co-conspirators turned on him. In exchange for immunity, Helm's wife, Carmen Miranda, and her brother Nick confessed everything they knew about Engelman's earliest murders. It took a bit longer for Bob Handy to admit his guilt and agree to testify against Engelman. However, once McGarvey and the prosecutors reminded him that confessing was the only way to save his own skin, Handy changed his tune. After all, the homicidal dentist never paid him for their last murder, and Handy knew Engelmann's friendship wasn't worth a lifetime in prison. With the testimony from all his former accomplices, McGarvey had evidence for the deaths of Peter Halm and Sophie Barrera. He also had strong circumstantial evidence for Engelmann's murders of James Bullock and Eric Fry. In the spring of 1980, Engelman was put on trial for the murders of Halm and Barrera. The result was two life sentences. But there were still other murders Engelman had gotten away with. Ron Goosewell and his parents. His former mistress Barbara was still free and living off of her insurance payout. It took a few more years before McGarvey finally got Bob Handy to tell the story from his prison cell. And by then, any hard evidence was almost impossible to uncover. Almost. On July 31, 1984, McGarvey returned to the scene of Ron Goosewell's murder. The house no longer belonged to Barbara. She'd sold it not long after her husband had been killed in the garage. McGarvey brought in the same forensic laboratory technicians who had worked on the Ron Goosewell case five years before. One of them was the same tech who noticed the fluffy towels covering Ron's decomposing corpse. McGarvey needed to prove that Ron had been killed there in his own garage and not killed where his body was found. So the forensic techs went to work. Using forensic technology,
1: they found old bloodstains pooled on the floor and splattered around the garage. Coroners and forensic pathologists use all kinds of technology to uncover medical clues at a crime scene. One example is a combination of the use of lighting and chemicals to detect hidden blood stains. Because blood won't fluoresce under UV light, like all other bodily fluids, chemicals like Blue Star, Luminol, and fluorescence can be sprayed over surfaces suspected of having been wiped clean. This will cause any invisible blood stain to luminesce or glow in the dark and become visible. Forensic technicians and blood stain analysts can also determine a lot by the physical characteristics of the blood at a crime scene, such as its spatter pattern, its distribution, and how much blood is present. In reference to this murder, blood stain analysts paid special attention to the fact that pooled blood stains were found on site. This indicated that someone bled out profusely and suggested death by severe injury. This was made even more suspicious by the fact that blood was found elsewhere, all around the garage. From the looks of things, along with the suspicions surrounding Ron's death, the crime lab tech seemingly discovered evidence of a violent murder. After the murder,
0: the walls had been painted over hastily, leaving the edges rough and signs of blood underneath. It was a sloppy, panicked cover-up. Barbara was arrested soon after the discovery. She was convicted for her part in the murder of her husband and sentenced to 50 years in prison. And Engelman received three additional life sentences. The homicidal career of dentist Glennon Engelman was over. He spent the rest of his life in prison, ignoring interview requests and keeping to himself. And, in 1999, 72-year-old Engelman died from complications due to diabetes. Over the course of nearly 30 years, Engelman killed at least 7 people for a little less than $50,000. He'd also avoided paying the nearly $15,000 he owed Sophie Barrera. All told, Engelman's murderous career had amounted to less than 65 dollars McGarvey, the prosecutors, and the press were baffled. Engelman could have made more money by simply focusing on dentistry. So why kill anyone? Engelman provided the answer himself. He only ever directly confessed to murder once, for the deaths of the Goosewell family. When he was interviewed by a prosecutor in jail, Engelman said, I like to kill. Not everyone has the strength to kill. It sets a man apart from his fellow man
1: if he can kill. Those are chilling words. This was a guy who clearly had severe mental illness. He appeared to be a true narcissist, completely void of empathy. He craved control and excitement, no matter the cost. Maybe his career as a dentist gave him some elevated sense of social status. However, Dentistry was very peripheral to his real drive and motivation in life. It's surprising to me how someone like this could even have the focus, compliance and dedication to become a dentist, given how powerful his dark desires and impulses were. Despite Engelmann's horrific story, I would say that 99% of the time, you have nothing to worry about when your dentist drills into your mouth or puts you under.
0: Though the rest of the world saw him as a mild-mannered conservative dentist, Glennon Engelman believed he was a superior model of masculinity. He believed he was smarter than anyone else he knew and committed multiple murders simply to prove he had the cunning to not get caught. But despite the fact that he'd evaded police for almost 30 years, in the end, Engelman was just a failed dentist who didn't get away. With murder. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thanks very much. For more information on Glenn and Engelman, among the many sources we used, we found the book Appointment for Murder by Susan Crane Buckos extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Kristin Acevedo, Jonathan Cohen, Alexandra Trikfordotir, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Andrew Messer, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kepper and Alistair Murden. Listeners, there's no better time than right now to make a meaningful connection with the Spotify original from Parcast, Blind Dating. Every Wednesday, find out if there's more to love than just looks. Follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.